Turn now to God's word in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to read the text, we'll pray, and we'll get to work. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we come to your word now and we hear what Paul is saying to Timothy. We hear what your spirit is speaking to the church through the exchange between these two men. And we pray, Father, that you would open our hearts to see, to grasp all the beauty of what you're saying to us today through this pastoral letter. We pray, Father, that we would take to heart the truths that are taught here and that we would take steps to see to it that our church conforms with your revealed will in this particular letter. We thank you, God, for speaking to us and giving us clarity in these things. And we pray, Father, that we would be obedient and that you would strengthen our faith as we walk in obedience to you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. A number of years ago, when I was first called to pastoral ministry, I first began to sense God's call on pastoral ministry. I uh, was attending a church in the south of Dallas at the time, Dallas, Texas, and I had a phenomenal, amazing mentor, a wonderful friend, and an incredible pastor by the name of Royce Dodd. He is still a dear friend to me to this day. We still talk on the phone on a fairly regular basis, and I enjoy a great friendship with him. At the tender, very inexperienced and ignorant age of 22, when I sensed the call of God on my life to go into pastoral ministry, I thought I had it all figured out. And so when my pastor would stand up and preach in the pulpit, I would snicker at times when he would mistake words for other words, when he meant to say Jerusalem and he ended up saying Jericho, and I'd laugh and say, ha, that's funny, he's not paying attention to what he's doing. And I would think with arrogance and hubris that as soon as I got into the pulpit, I would never make any of those mistakes and I would be God's gift to pastoral ministry and preaching in general. How young and naive I was. Does anybody remember last Christmas? <laughs> Silas versus Linus? <laughs> yeah, you do. You remember it. And it took me about three months to live that one down. And uh, having just reminded of you of it, I'm sure it'll take me another three months to live it down now. You're so wonderful to me as a church body. I love you so much. So, of course, mistakes are made in the pulpit. You are preaching and you're moving along and you'll mistake words. But I was convinced that I had my theology all figured out. I knew exactly what the Bible was saying. I had it all squared away and uh, I knew exactly how to preach it. I knew exactly how it was all supposed to be done. And my pastor gave me the opportunity, Pastor Royce gave me the opportunity on a Sunday evening to preach my very first sermon. I had been working on three of them. And I stood up in the pulpit No joke, and these were to be lengthy discourses on Jesus Christ and the nature of salvation. First sermon, 30-minute sermon, at least as I had preached it to myself in the mirror, it had timed out to about 30 minutes. I whipped through it in about six and a half minutes. And I was so nervous, I was talking so fast, the sweat was flowing, the words were flying, and I can recall looking down at the congregation from the pulpit that Sunday evening, and they were sitting there with their Bibles in their laps like this. And it wasn't like a, an awe, sort of, wow. It was more like a, good job, but not really. You know, that's more the look that they were giving me, right? And I remember stepping down out of the pulpit that Sunday evening, and I was drenched and just soaked and sick to my stomach and nervous. 
And I went over to my pastor, and I sat down, and they, the, they had gotten up to sing the last hymn. And uh, my pastor didn't say a word. We sing this whole hymn. It's about time for the closing prayer. He leans over, and he says, I overheard you making fun of me when I misspoke Jericho for Jerusalem the other day. <laughs> and then he stood up to pray. <laughs> Humility is a good thing. It comes in a painful manner. I value my pastor so much. I appreciated his teaching and his mentoring so much. He was fully aware every step of the way of how inexperienced and raw I was and how I even in my arrogance was critical of him sometimes unfairly and unlovingly behind his back. And he knew it and he loved me anyway. He had the heart of a true pastor. I have learned that standing in the pulpit and giving a one-off sermon, it can be done and it can be done well, but it's nothing like having the responsibility of standing in the pulpit every week, week in and week out, and being charged with the responsibility of keeping your eye on the horizon and seeing dangers as they present themselves to your congregation and having to stand with courage to say unpopular things at times. But more than that, having to know that Everything you do, from the mannerisms, from the jokes that you tell, from the, just the way that you go about presenting something, the church is watching. You are watching. And whether you're even consciously aware of it or not, you are mimicking me and imitating me. I first became painfully aware of this about eight years ago. I mentioned something to do with the church in Corinth. I mentioned something from the passage of 1 Corinthians and I made the comment, the church at Corinth, I mean, the city of Corinth was such a horrible city, you know, it was like our present-day Las Vegas. There's an advertising slogan for Vegas, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. I said Corinth was that same way. It was a city that had, was into so much different sinful activities. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. And I remember about six months later, I was attending a Bible study being led by another one of our young men, and he was going through something in Corinthians, and he made the statement, you know the old saying, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. It wasn't that old of a saying, because I had just said it six months before. He had forgotten I was the one who had said it, and he was, uh, you know, saying it. And I remembered that I had said it to him, and I remember thinking at the time, the weight and the responsibility of setting yourself forth as an example and speaking the word of God to a group of people, it is crushing if it is not done with the help of Jesus Christ. Decisions are made, lives are altered, and souls are saved based upon the leadership of what happens in the church. Timothy needs a word. He needs a lot of words. And Paul, like any good pastor, any good friend, is going to write and give him encouragement and give him help. We have three, three letters in the New Testament which we will classify as pastoral letters or pastoral epistles. We've got 1 Timothy. We've got 2 Timothy. That's, he wrote two letters to Timothy. And he also had another young man that he was mentoring and discipling, a fellow by the name of Titus. And we have a letter addressed to Titus. 
In these three letters, Paul has one primary concern, which you will see over and over and over again in all three letters. True belief, we must believe correctly, true belief and right behavior. And they're two sides of the same coin. Wrong belief will lead to wrong behavior. If you don't have true belief, you won't have true behavior. And so he's emphasizing that over and over and over again. That's his primary concern. In his letter to Titus, Paul's concern was that Titus would stay and he would straighten out structural details, matters of leadership within the churches there on the island of Crete. This is what he says to him. He says, this is why I left you there, that you would put into order what was left undone. And he gives specific instructions in that first chapter of Titus regarding the appointment of elders, uh, leadership And the structure of the church was important to the Apostle Paul. But as you work your way through the rest of the letter, you find that that is a foundational piece to what his ultimate concern is, that there would be right belief and right behavior within the church. In 2 Timothy, his great concern in this particular letter, and it's his last letter before he is to be martyred for the faith. In this letter, Paul writes to Timothy, and his great concern is to make sure that he has completely put into Timothy's hands the truths of the gospel and to exhort Timothy to make sure that he will guard the deposit that Paul has put into him. That's what he's uh, concerned about. And we find within the letter, this letter of 2 Timothy, there is an exhortation to Timothy as a man and as a pastor to man the ramparts and to defend biblical doctrine, biblical orthodoxy. The idea is there for Paul talking to Timothy that there will always be this threat of false teachers coming into the church and false doctrine slowly but surely working its way in, which inevitably will result in false living, false belief leading to false behavior. We find that 1 Timothy is sort of the the first letter that he writes here of these three pastoral letters. And we find that he touches on all of these things. He touches on false teachers. He touches on counterfeit Christianity. He touches on false doctrine. But there are really a couple of different reasons, three major reasons that Paul is writing. The first is to bolster Timothy's spirits. Remember, Timothy's going to be called to confront some of this stuff. As a young man, he's unsure of himself. He's probably just like me, not too long ago, sweating buckets as he stands before his small, undoubtedly small congregation to preach at them. He needs encouragement. He needs to be lifted up. He needs to be edified. He needs advice and instruction from his mentor. And so we see here, if you want to flip as you're in 1 Timothy, look at 4.14. Paul makes the statement to Timothy in 4.14, Don't neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. He's like, don't, don't neglect this. Keep at it, keep at it. Persistence is the key. Immerse yourself in it. In chapter 6 and verse 12, he makes the statement, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession. He's reminding Timothy of his faith. He's reminding him of the hope that Timothy has. And again, he says in 6 chapter 20, look at this. Tail end of the book, he says, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. These are things which you need to look to, which you need to give attention to. So one of the primary reasons that Paul is writing to Timothy is to bolster his spirits. 
The other issue, of course, that Paul wants to address within 1 Timothy is the question of doctrine, specifically false doctrine, false teachers that will bring corruption within the church as wicked and twisted men arise, even from within the body of elders. And he starts off with a bang. I mean, so the first thing that he really says to him after he gives the initial greeting in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. He's pastoring a church at Ephesus. He says, stay at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Paul is very clear. One of the reasons I sent you there, young man, was so that you could take this problem into your hands and you could address it the way the Lord would have you to address it. So he has to confront false doctrine and false teachers. If you flip down in that same chapter to verse 9, I beg your pardon, verse 19. Tail in the first chapter 19, Paul alludes to the fact that this false doctrine has long-term consequences for the faith of the people in the church. He says, starting, we'll have to back it up a little bit, start in verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. So again, what we believe drives how we behave. And how we behave will impact our further growth in faith, whether we have further growth in faith or not. And the clear result of individuals who turn away from sound teaching is that their faith is called shipwrecked. He goes on further in chapter 6, further addressing this issue. uh, He says in chapter 6, verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and doesn't agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit, he understands nothing. So Paul is touching on these issues. Number one, he wants to encourage Timothy. Number two, he wants Timothy to be sure to address the false teaching that is happening there at the church at Ephesus. And uh, third, last but not least, he wants to address proper doctrine. You'll notice in chapter 1, verse 8, he talks about the law, and he makes this statement, the law is good if one uses it, as he says there, lawfully. So there's a right way and a wrong way to use the law. And he goes on in chapter 4 and verse 6. He says, you know, you need to give uh, instruction in sound doctrine. So he wants Timothy not only to confront the false teachers and the false doctrine, but he wants him to give good doctrine, good instruction. And in connection with all of this, something which you and I might not see as being necessarily apparent, but it's clearly here. In connection with preserving correct teaching, making sure that the church is living a right lifestyle, making sure that things are going well in the church, at the heart of all of that is making sure that the proper structure is in place, specifically that the proper leadership is in place. Almost a whole chapter is devoted to elders and deacons, their qualifications, their characteristics, and their appointment. Structure or or the actual forming of the institution of the church is so boring to us. We talk about things like constitution and bylaws and our eyes sort of glaze over and we think, okay, this is uh, boring stuff. This is just what other people need to deal with. And yet for Paul, and this isn't necessarily a constitution and bylaws document for the church, but for Paul, structure matters. 
The organization of the church matters. The leadership that is in the church and how they function and how they relate in relation to the people in the pew and the congregation, that is not secondary. That is primary to making sure that the problem of false teachers and false doctrine is adequately addressed. If you think you're going to not have any false doctrine in a church with a man in the pulpit who doesn't have a spine and who can't stand up to false teachers, you've got another thing coming. It will happen. If the man preaching can't stand up for biblical truth, it is just a matter of time before Satan brings in error and deception. So all of these are things which are at the heart of what Paul is saying to Timothy. Now, as I said, Timothy's pastoring a church in Ephesus. This is an interesting town, a very, very wealthy town. The streets are paved with white marble. In fact, the Ephesus is still there today, and you can still go there today, and tour guides will tell you right around high noon when the sun is at its zenith, you need to put sunglasses on because of the glare off of this white marble is so strong that it actually can damage your eyes. On a bright, sunny day on the coast of the Mediterranean, it would have literally been a gleaming beacon on the horizon to any ships coming in to port. As a result of its proximity there on the coast and as a waypoint between Rome and the southern reaches in, in, in Jerusalem and Israel, it was a gateway to the east, and so a number of ships would, tr- would stop there. It was a merchant's town. It was a place where Roman soldiers could stop, disembark, get something to eat, get a moment to rest before they were headed on their way somewhere else within the empire. It was also popular because a number of people attended, went to this city to attend the temple there, a temple which was dedicated to either she was known as Athena or, or Diana, the goddess of fertility. Now, we have CPP. Uh, we and many of us have RSPs, uh, some sort of pension fund. When it, tum- when it comes time for us, when we're too old and we can't work anymore, there will be uh, some means of retirement there. In the first century, Roman Empire didn't have any CPP. Caesar, CPP, give me a break. You know what your retirement was in the first century? Your children them looking after you and caring for you in your old age. So what if you can't have kids? There's no way you can retire. There's no one to look after you when you get old. This goddess had her temple there. The merchants there, in fact, made a fortune selling figurines and statues of her. And people who struggled with infertility who were looking to have kids would flock by the thousands to this city every year and would pay exorbitant amounts of money, considering it an investment in their retirement, in order to get this statue of this goddess of fertility, hoping that somehow they wouldn't be left without children. At the heart of all of this is a little church founded by Paul, struggling with false doctrine, false teaching, striving to be a light in the city of light. That is the context. Paul begins his letter with an address. We turn now to chapter 1, verse 1. Letters in the first century are a little different than the letters that you and I write today. Generally, when you're writing an email or writing a letter, you'll say, dear so-and-so, dear John, you'll write your whole, your whole list of stuff there that you want to say, and then you'll sign it off at the end, sincerely, sincerely, 
Joshua or in Christ, Joshua or whatever, whatever you might say. But in the first century, letters started off differently. They would start off first and foremost with the name of the person who was writing the letter. Actually, this is how we do it today via email. You get an email in your inbox. You look to see who it's from. And that does have influence on whether or not you're going to open that email. Am I right? Yeah, we still do it today. And I dare say we still did it back in the days when we got letters. First thing we do, where is the return return address? Where is this from? In a lot of ways, the same things that they would practice in the first century, we still hold to today, although in a slightly different format, a slightly different custom, but still the same principle. Here in the first century, they would write a letter, and they would start off very beginning, this is who this is. So you know. Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Now right there, that should just grab your attention. He's going to call Timothy his true child in the faith. Okay, so imagine me writing a letter to my daughter who's gone off to university, gone off somewhere to start her life, and I'm wanting to encourage her. And so I write a letter, and I give her some points of wisdom and some points of encouragement, and then I sign it, sincerely, Joshua Clay Camp, senior pastor at First Baptist Church, BA in Biblical Studies from Dallas Baptist University, MA in Pastoral Counseling from Liberty, MDiv from Liberty. Okay, Dad, thanks for all of that. Uh, Yeah, I'm proud of you too. A little bit heady here, aren't we, Dad? I mean, uh, it would almost, in our day and age, it would almost color and taint everything else in the letter. Like, I'm just bragging on my accomplishments. And yet, notice the way that Paul writes his letter. Paul, okay, that was his Greek name. His given name was Saul. He adopted his Greek name for ministry to the Gentiles. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Okay, so let's take my letter a little step further. Dear Chloe, I love you, do good. Sincerely, Joshua David Claycamp, Senior Pastor, First Baptist Church. B.A. in Biblical Studies from Dallas Baptist University, M.A. in Pastoral Counseling from Liberty University, M.Div. by command of God. (laughs) It seems intense, doesn't it? It's okay to laugh. It's like, whoa, like you're hitting me with both barrels here. Yeah, I love you too. I mean, uh, maybe I should call you. Maybe there's some insecurities going on there. I don't know. Now, as we read this first line... We recognize that's a powerful statement. He's saying, I am Paul, an apostle of God. You are Timothy, my true child in the faith. What they're experiencing in the first century, in terms of the effects upon their souls as a result of all of this teaching that's going on, all these different deities, all these different gods. I mean, they, they had the Greek pantheon of gods, and the Romans had their own, their own list of gods as well. I mean, you had a very pantheistic culture. It was a very pluralistic culture. It was a culture that said, essentially, there's a number of different truths, and you can believe what you want, so long as you're sincere, because each person can have his own truth, and each person can have his own God. It was a day and age in which... Everyone was willing to give plausibility to just about everything, but certainty to nothing. Let me say that again. 
It was a day and age in which everyone was willing to give plausibility to everything, but certainty to nothing. Can you relate? Does that not sound a little bit like 21st century Kamloops? Now, if you're in a culture in which there's nothing concrete, there's nothing firm, there's nothing absolutely certain, if you're in a culture in which everybody is running after every type of truth, every type of religion, if you're in a culture in which even our gender is up for grabs, and we're not even sure whether we're supposed to be boys or girls, if you're in a culture that has every possible aspect or element of society shifting, and you're trying to encourage a pastor within that culture, how do you give him something stable? How do you give him something solid upon which to stand? I can tell you from personal experience, especially in the early days of my ministry preaching, I would say things that I thought sounded awesome, and I would have people struggle with it, and then I would question, was that as awesome as I thought it was, or am I just going too hard and too full bore? I had other times in which I would say things that I thought were fairly benign and and unremarkable, only to have the church rise up in an uproar. What are you doing? What are you saying? And in either instance, whether I was over the top or I was underselling it, in either case, I was left wondering whether or not I was right to even say it. The question of certainty comes into view here. Is this indeed, beyond all shadow of a doubt, the right thing to say? Undoubtedly, you've experienced this too, whether you're aware of it or not. If you've ever shared the gospel with anyone, if you've ever tried to evangelize your friend, your coworker, your neighbor, they undoubtedly, if you're faithful in this, undoubtedly at some point in time, you've met with resistance. And they've said things to you like, that's offensive. That's the worst thing I've ever heard. How could you believe that? And you've stepped back and you've wondered, hmm, did I go about it the right way? Was there a better way that I could have presented this? Maybe I should have waited to have this conversation until we had been friends for two or three more months. This is what Paul is saying. I am speaking to you as an apostle. What Timothy needs is a sure, certain word from an individual who has been authorized by God the Father to speak these words. And he is getting it from his mentor, the apostle Paul. At the end of the day, the only thing that has provided me any confidence or any certainty that I'm doing anything right is the plain text of the Word of God. And as a young man pastoring in first century Ephesus without a completed canon, he's got Old Testament, but he doesn't have the New Testament, without a completed canon, he's pastoring, he's preaching, he's doing the best he can. He needs his friends to speak into his life, but that simply doesn't cut it. The best encouragement that any of us could receive is a firm, certain, authoritative word from the Lord. And that's exactly what Paul gives him. I am writing to you as Paul, an apostle by command of God. This isn't Paul uh, being high on himself, being puffed up and proud and conceited. This isn't Paul saying, yeah, look at me, I'm awesome, I'm an apostle. You're just a lowly pastor. That's not what he's doing at all. What he is about to say comes from an authorized representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is critical for us because there are churches today that even bandy about this term apostle rather loosely. 
and we'll probably have to cut this short. Um, I'm just going to make this comment. There are churches today that bandy about this term apostle loosely. The Greek word apostolos in its most basic form means messenger, someone who carries a message. In that sense, you could say that all of you, anytime you've evangelized or anytime you've delivered a note to someone, you are an apostle. You are an apostolos. You are just a messenger carrying a message from someone else. In the most generic sense, that's what the term means. And yet we know that from the New Testament, the Gospels in particular, there were 12 individuals, specifically 12 individuals, who were called apostles, but they were appointed to a very specific office. We have the 12. Remember, Judas hung himself. And in Acts chapter 1, they appointed Matthias to take his place. So you have the 12, Matthias reconstituting the group. And then you have the apostle Paul, who was also designated an apostle in the sense of the office of apostle. Here's a couple of things. Number one, the designation. To be an apostle requires you to be called and chosen specifically by Jesus Christ himself. In the Gospel of John, this is made abundantly clear, and we see that Paul mentions this in Galatians chapter 1, talking about his own calling. In verse 12, he says, I would have you know, brothers, that I didn't receive my gospel from any man, nor was I taught it. Just stop there for a second. All of us in this room have heard the gospel proclaimed to us by other men. We have all received the message of salvation. It has come by the power of the Holy Spirit, no doubt, but the agent of delivery has been another man. Paul is saying, when I heard the gospel, I didn't hear it from a man, point blank. He goes on to say in that specific passage, I I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus appeared to him directly on the road to Damascus, and undoubtedly there were subsequent Revelations. Paul makes a statement of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He goes on to say, I have seen revelations too wonderful and too spectacular for man to be allowed to talk about. So undoubtedly, Paul had numerous revelations, numerous direct experiences of the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember in my first year systematic theology class, they were giving us a spiritual gifts survey to help us to know what our spiritual gift is. And I'll never forget, there was a girl in our class who said, my spiritual gift isn't listed on here. And the professor, a wonderful man that I still love to this day, Dr. Bell, said, well, what do you think your spiritual gift is? And he went on, before he asked that question, he wanted to say, this is just meant to be, you know, uh, sort of a primer to help get you thinking about it. It's not authoritative. It's not definitive. This, that, and the other. So what do you think your spiritual gift is? She says, well, I'm clearly a New Testament apostle. And we all started laughing. We're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then we realized she was serious. And so then the laughter kind of awkwardly died down. It was one of those moments where you think to yourself, I'm glad I don't have to say anything about this. And and everybody just slowly turns and, and looks at Dr. Bell. New Testament apostle requires a direct revelation from Jesus Christ. You have to have been a witness of his ministry, and specifically a witness of his resurrection. This is one of the qualifications that is mentioned in the scriptures. They are, apostles are familiar with his doctrine, and they are specifically eyewitnesses of his resurrection. This is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15.8. Paul, again, shoring up his office, his, his qualification to be an apostle, he says, 
You know, Jesus appeared to a number of people, and last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And in the context of that chapter, he's talking about the resurrection. So Paul observed the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. So first off, you have to be called and chosen by Jesus. Second off, there are certain qualifications before you can be designated an apostle. Most notably, you have to be an observer, a direct eyewitness of his resurrection. And third, your ministry is authenticated by God himself. God blesses and confirms the work of an apostle with accompanying signs and miracles. In 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul writing the church at Corinth says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Their office is not restricted to a specific church. It extends across all churches for all time. They hold this office in perpetuity even after they have died. Now don't misunderstand me. That's not to say that apostles are still alive and running around somewhere today ministering. They are alive in heaven. But their ministry continues on this earth through the things that they have written. I want you to just flip backwards with me to Ephesians. Go back a couple of books there and I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 2. Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, side note, this is the same church that Timothy is now pastoring. Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, he makes the statement, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now he's using this term, household of God, in the all-encompassing universal sense of it. There are individual churches all throughout time, but then there is the church universal, which is every believer who has ever trusted in Jesus Christ, past and present and future. So speaking in that specific vein, he says you are members of the household of God, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The apostles, as direct eyewitnesses of the ministry and teaching of Jesus Christ, were commissioned by Jesus to lay down the authoritative doctrine of Christianity in the first century. The apostolic preaching of the cross is what leads to the birth and the formation of the church in the first century there in Jerusalem. They then take these teachings and largely through a writing ministry, writing letters back and forth to churches which they themselves established in the first century, they take the teachings of Jesus and they largely codify them and boil them down and put them here where the church was then blessed and privileged to recognize the apostolic authority, to recognize the writing and the teaching of the doctrine of Christ and compiled it into the canon, the word of God. Now let me put the pause button right there. Contrary to Da Vinci Code, the church didn't get around 100 years after the fact and flip a coin and say, hey, what are we going to believe, guys? No, no, no. These letters were written. They were copied. They were mass-produced in the first century. And immediately upon reception, it was recognized that these books were scriptural. They weren't just the writings of a man. They were indeed the word of God. That is the office of apostle. 
we benefit from it today in the sense that we still have the word of God to us today. They are still exercising a ministry through the written word by the power of the Holy Spirit. There will be no more New Testament apostles. Now our time has gotten away from us this morning. So in conclusion, I simply want to say this. There are some of you out there who are saying, Pastor, that's all well and good, but this letter sounds like it's a letter directed mostly for pastors. Indeed, it was written to a pastor, from an apostle to a pastor. That is true. But Paul, making this final statement, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, says, the reason I am writing these things to you is so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Perhaps some of you have been identifying with me and relating to some of my experiences and recognizing and appreciating the full weight that comes upon the man who steps into the pulpit to preach the word of God. This isn't just important, however, for pastors or aspiring pastors. It's important for you too. First and foremost, because you as the church need to know how you ought to behave within this place, within this household of God. You need to understand what your responsibilities are. But you may not be aware of this. But you also need to know that in the same way that there is a great burden upon the pastors in this church to lead lives worthy of imitation and to proclaim and speak forth the truth of God, that same burden is on you too. When you go out into the workplace, when you go back home today to your home and your neighborhood, your family that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ is watching you. Your co-workers, which understand that you're a follower of Jesus, yet they themselves have rejected faith. They are watching you. And I'm sure you've heard the expression before. For 90% of the world, the only Bible that they'll ever read is you. Now, obviously, that's a bit of an inflated statistic, I'm sure. But it's true. Whatever pressures are felt up here, you may not have been aware of it, but they are there for you when you leave this place. And so as we turn to the book of 1 Timothy, the pastoral epistles, it's a shepherd, an apostle, striving to shepherd a young man who is himself a shepherd of others. And my prayer for you as we begin this book is that we would all allow ourselves to be shepherded by the word of God, to stand up to a lost and broken world and to proclaim the glory of God. As we begin this book, I'm excited about the things that lie ahead and I ask that you would start reading it in advance and preparing for Sunday morning messages from 1 Timothy. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word to us this morning. Lord, we pray that uh, as we look at 1 Timothy, We pray, Father, that you, Lord, would help us to conform more and more fully to the image of your Son. 
We thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And we pray, God, that you would use us to shine as a light to the world around us. Teach us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen.